girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. Not going through the six boxes of stuff which had been sitting in storage for years, the original 1934-35 scorebook was in amongst all these records. We couldn't always guarantee sponsorship because we were never in the limelight. I think it's the biggest challenge of their lives. They see England as the cricketing nation because cricket began there. When Elise Perry hit the ball over the boundary, I just went, oh my goodness. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. Hello and welcome to the finale of The Maiden Summer, a bonus episode of the podcast that tells the story of the development of Australian women's cricket. I'm Nick Richardson and in this episode we take a look at what happened to some of the stars of our show, hear how cricket shaped their lives after their playing days and listen to them reflect on how the game changed them. If there's one thing that emerges from the stories of the women who were there, It's how cricket gave them opportunities to experience worlds they'd never known and to make lifelong friends among their peers and their rivals. you remember that England's first captain, Betty Archdale, is not only a shrewd leader, but she develops a bit of a soft spot for Australia during that first tour back in 1934. At the end of World War II, she finds herself with the opportunity to return to Australia for a role initially connected with her work with the Wrens. Being in Sydney leads to a job opportunity that Betty's network of cricket friends, including Margaret and Barbara Peden, urge her to apply for. So I came off to Australia as quick as I could and then uh, I was only out here I think about three, four months when of course the whole thing folded up and we were sent home. But while I was out here um, I had another stroke of luck. The principalship of the Women's College uh, became vacant and a lot of friends urged, really old cricketing friends, urged me to apply which I did and uh, they appointed me and I just went straight home to get released from the Wrens and see my mother and tied up a few things and came straight back uh, to be principal of the Women's College within the University of Sydney. Betty remains in Sydney, becoming the principal of Abbotsley, a girls' school that is also where the Pedens learned their cricket. Betty's already the godmother to Barbara Peden's son, Colin Munro, and they will over time become great mates. Betty even has a television and radio career. And just in case anyone doubts how much she's become part of her adopted homeland, Betty's declared an Australian national treasure. Nell McClarty never stops wanting to be outdoors and never stops loving cricket. She's awarded a British Empire Medal, as it's then called, for her services to the women's game. It's richly deserved. She battles a chronic back problem, though, and has to retire prematurely. I always thought I'd be able to play again. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was always that sort of person, well, tomorrow I'll be all right. And it went on for that many tomorrows. (laughs) Those many, many years before I realised there wasn't going to be a tomorrow. The condition is so debilitating, she shrunk from five foot 10 inches in her playing days to just five foot four. But a huge testimonial match is held in her honour and some of her old English rivals are delighted to take part. Not surprisingly, Nell doesn't like the fuss, but she still finds time to coach every Sunday morning some of Australia's best players. Eventually, 
my head guard and I'll be stopped. <laughs> and I still do a bit. So I used to catch things and do it a lot. But now I've only got the end of two hours on the Sunday morning, that's all I can manage. She's still coaching in her late 70s. And for the last few years of her life, Nell volunteers at one of the fruit and vegetable stalls at South Melbourne Market. She never liked meat, you know. Nell passes away at the end of 1998, just 10 days shy of her 87th birthday. Margaret Peden continues as a cricket administrator for many years after she'd retired playing. But that too becomes too onerous. She's one of the first of that 1934-35 team to go, passing away in 1981. Peggy Antonio, the girl Grimmett, as we know, already retired. Years later, she reckons none of her four kids know much about her exploits. But there's a good reason for that. Well, they were never told. <laughs> my daughter's got my book now, a scrapbook, but whether she's read it or not, I don't know. Well, it was a subject that was never pushed. <laughs> What is beyond doubt is the transformative power of those cricket experiences, especially the opportunity to travel, to cross state borders, play in other cities, to visit England in 1937 and see up close a different world. It's liberating and stimulating. No one could doubt its impact. Peggy feels it keenly. It was just uh, mixing with the uh, upper class in England that I feel helped me to mature and because you'd have to go back to the type of environment that both Nell and I were involved in was just working class and in those days it was just a question of surviving. It was really that. Whereas over there that environment was gone temporarily and uh, well one started to think, I know I did, and realised that it was a big world. There were lots of things to think about. And that perspective is also true for Nell. And that's what it was, you had six months. Six months, mind you. Oh, I didn't like being inside a factory. I'd be looking out the window to see what sort of day it was and wishing I was out there. I just loved being outside and that was a thing that opened up a new world. This isn't just about the experience of that first Australian team. There is a long line of players who know just how much cricket has shaped their view of the world. Karen Hill, Nee Price, starts her representative career with the New South Wales schoolgirls side in 1969-70. She goes on to play eight tests and 16 one-dayers for Australia. She scores a test century and returns a best bowling of six for 72. And in 1984, she's the nation's vice-captain. Karen has no doubt just how much cricket has given her. My first time I got selected, I went to New Zealand. And then the year after that was the West Indies and, and England. Now, I had never, ever been anywhere in my life. Like, growing up, we had no money. So we never even had a holiday. So just this going and playing state cricket and going interstate was a huge thing for me. Of course, it's radically different now, now that the men's and women's game are together, compared to the circumstances Nell, Peggy and Margaret confronted, let alone Karen, back in the 1970s and 80s. The game is now far more professional. The girls now don't have to have a full-time job and fit cricket in between, which is what we had to do. 
and in fact that we at times couldn't go on tours or go to interstate because you couldn't get time off work or you couldn't afford it because you'd spent all your money on the last tour. So now they don't they don't have that constraint. They can concentrate on cricket. They can practice every day, whereas you know we were you know you'd go to your your one afternoon a week training session and maybe you'd, you'd play on Saturday and train on on Sunday if you're in a in a representative team, but work full time. I was working full time. I was going to TAFE at night and trying to play cricket, and that's what you had to do. Recognition has come too, but it's been slow, almost glacial. Before Betty Archdale passes away in January 2000, she's notified by the MCC in London that she's among the first 10 women to be granted honorary life membership. In Australia, all the women are finally given a baggy green cap. For champion Betty Wilson, it's a moment to savour. It's like when I got my baggy green cap a couple of years ago. If I could have got that and worn that many, many years ago, I would have been so proud. But, of course, until Women's Cricket and Men's Incorporated, we didn't get anything like that. But they went back and they presented uh, when Women's Cricket and Men's Cricket became Cricket Australia. They went back over uh, all women test cricketers and they all got baggy green caps. And um, I think they must be up in the hundreds now, but mine was number 25. So I was the 25th Australian since 1934 to wear a baggy green cap. All the predecessors uh, would all be dead and gone, but they would have had a number. But Betty's induction to the ICC Hall of Fame and the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame will only happen after she dies in 2010. And then... There's the ashes, of course. Not even a possibility back in Nell and Peggy's day. It was just Australia v England back then, and no less competitive because of it. So does having a trophy matter? Karen Hill's not so sure. I think what matters is you're playing for Australia against England, you know, and there's that rivalry regardless of whether you're playing for the ashes or you're playing for whatever. The Ashes is great, and I'm a bit in two minds about whether the women should be playing for the Ashes, because the Ashes really is historically a men's event. That may be true, but like many things, it depends on who you ask. And as the women's Ashes gets underway again in Australia, it'd be a brave Australian cricket fan who didn't admit to wanting to beat England and see our captain, Meg Lanning, hoist the trophy at the end of the series. When I was a child, I'd go to a park just about 100 metres down the road from my front gate to watch sport on Saturday afternoon. In winter, it was men's soccer. In summer, it was Vigoro. I knew a little about Vigoro. My aunts and my mum played it during the 1940s and 1950s. As a game, it seems an odd hybrid. It's got some mixture of tip and run cricket, a bat that has a kind of hockey stick handle with a paddle at the end, and bowlers run up and throw the ball. It's hectic and difficult. The hard rubber ball bounces off untended grass pitches with a kind of wild velocity. Vigoro never came close to rivaling cricket as a summer sport, but it had plenty going for it. The equipment wasn't expensive, facilities didn't need to be too sophisticated, and it was a lot easier to find spaces to play. The game itself never stopped. It was fun to watch. Some years later, 
I was playing cricket in my school side and as part of an end of year celebration, we played a staff team. I had an idea of four or five staff members who'd turn up. There'd be our English teacher who was our cricket coach, the PE staff, one of the more athletic teachers in the technology department, but then one of the science teachers turned up too. She was wearing a pleated white skirt, long white socks, white top, and had proper cricket boots. She bowled medium pace and swung the ball alarmingly. I'd never seen a female cricketer. I had no idea if she played every week. Were there games somewhere in our small town for women's cricketers? And who were those other players? It seemed improbably difficult to find out, but I hope my science teacher, Julie Miller, kept playing for as long as she could. After I played more cricket and watched a hell of a lot more, wrote bits and pieces about the game and researched a fair bit about cricket's old days, I realised that women's cricket might be the same game as men's cricket, but its history and its trajectory is very much its own story. And although the pivotal point might be that first test series more than eight decades ago, there's a compelling backstory that explains so much that led to that innovation in 1934-1935. There's no one around to carry the torch for that team now. Their youngest player, Piggy Antonio, passed away 20 years ago. But their absence is not an invitation to extend the silence of years. We have spent too long averting our eyes from what remains, by any measure, an extraordinary achievement in the nation's sporting history. Now, in the midst of another women's test cricket series between the two old foes, it's time to remember those who made the maiden summer all those years ago and to celebrate what they created. This podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. Remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all those who contributed to The Maiden Summer and especially these voices, Karen Hill, Anne Gordon, Nikki Henningham, Rena Hoare, Anne Mitchell, Raph Nicholson, Ray Snedden, Jackie Triffitt and Louise Zeta Sampson. For details on sources and resources, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au.